Isn't his love amazing? We're going to dismiss the kids. You guys can go to your, your classes. Just love the, just a reminder of God's amazing love. We just read in that psalm that his love is steadfast, that it never changes. It's always there. Would you pray with me before we open the word? So, Lord, this morning, um, your love is amazing. You've, you've forgiven us. You've restored us. God, you carry our burdens. Um, God, we're just deeply grateful we worship you. Lord, in a moment as we open the word, would you open our hearts? Lord, teach us what we don't know. Change us into what we are not. Um, strengthen us where we are weak, Lord. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. If you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd. And uh, do the majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. We're working our way through the book of Hebrews. I do want to take care of just a couple of things that I wanted to um, make sort of an announcement or an update on before I go into the sermon this morning. Um, we are planning a baptism on March 3rd, and um, a young man that would like to be baptized. So if there's somebody here who would like to also be baptized on March 3rd. I'll probably say a little more about that later. When we did Vision Sunday, um, we talked about installing or bringing Leon um, and Wanda Stutzman on board as family pastors. We asked you as a church to take some time and fast and pray about that. And um, I was really, really impressed with the response. We got a lot of response, all of which was very positive and affirming. And um, so we are planning to install Leon and Wanda as um, their family pastors on the 10th of March. So we're going to move forward with that. So thank you so much for your prayers and your feedback. And just got really, really good feedback, and I just appreciate it a lot. The, um, the title of the sermon this morning is Perseverance of the Saints. And I need to, just for my own sake, this is not for you, this is for me, out of curiosity, um, by show of hands, how many of you associate those words with a doctrinal belief? I'm just curious. One, two, three, okay. It's about what I figured. I interact a lot with other pastors, and they would immediately recognize a, a phrase like perseverance of the saints to be the P in the tulip of five-point Calvinism. And you're all like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> you know, T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and the P is perseverance of the saints. And it's, it's always interesting to me because my perception, and I think you just proved me right, is that the majority of Christians are not walking around thinking about things like, am I a Calvinist or an Armenian? Right? Now, I think about that a lot. You don't. Um, you know, in the, in the early 1600s, it was a hotly contested issue. Jacob Armenia was, was sort of challenging some of the notions that John Calvin had taught in the Dutch Netherlands, and it was very contentious. Um, people were expelled from church, and, you know, like they tended to do back then, things got pretty heated. Um, there was 
a meeting that they had to resolve the issue. The meeting literally lasted over seven months. Now, I've been in some long meetings. <laughs> that was a long meeting. Um, the, 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 the tension and the argument was over things like, um, did God choose me or did I choose him? See, now I'm on territory you guys do think about. Um, if God chose me, which there are texts that look that way, and then there are texts that look like I chose him, does, does he choose other people? Is it open to everybody or is it just open to a few? In other words, did he predestine only a few or some to experience grace and the others are reserved for judgment. I'll bet you think about that sometimes too. Maybe not quite as much. If he extends grace, could I say no? So they argued over this stuff. And then the last one, the perseverance of the saints. Would it be possible for a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have experienced grace, but to reject it and walk away from it. Is that possible? See, now we're on ground that we think about some, don't we? Because sometimes you'll have things going on in your life, and you're not at a great spot, and you don't feel like you're a Christian. And you don't feel like God even loves you anymore, much less likes you. And you're pretty sure that if you died right in that moment, that you would experience those awful words, depart from me, because you violated God's moral laws. And so we think about these things. You may have grown up in a context where that was treated so rigidly that as soon as you sinned, you were immediately had fallen from the grace of God. I mentioned this before, but I vividly remember a number of years ago being at a funeral where I heard a pastor say that, he said, I don't even tell people at a funeral that the one who passed away, that we believe he's in heaven because he might have sinned right before he died. And I wanted to stand up and say, I'm pretty sure he did sin, and so will you. Like, we're not even aware sometimes of our own fleshly humanity and our propensity to sin. So, is it possible that somebody could have once tasted the grace of God and to have abandoned it? And it would be interesting if we took a poll to hear what your thoughts are. And if you're curious where I'm at, I don't know for sure. Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to a rigid Reformed theology um, in the sense that many do. I don't call myself a Calvinist. I had a friend tell me one time, you are and you just don't know it. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm actually very um, sort of disillusioned with the labels, if I can be completely honest. Because they tend to take any text 
and force it into their preconceived notions. And that's what bothers me about all of them. The, the, label, the doctrinal labels and some of the creeds, I'm not against them. Um, I just think that they're, they, they have the potential to be flawed and they have the potential to say things that God didn't actually say. So I tend to not get real hung up on subscribing to that. I see things sometimes on social media because I follow a number of different pastors. Um, I saw one recently that said, if you don't subscribe to Calvinist theology, you are in fact a heretic and you are leading people to hell. It's like, okay, <laughs> I, I don't buy that. I, I mean, show me the chapter and the verse, right? Um, but but that's, like, that's how rigidly some people tie themselves to things. And I was in a workshop a number of years ago. Robbie Simons was teaching it, and he was teaching on just um, expositional teaching. And he made the comment, and it really stuck with me, and it clicked with me. He said, if you faithfully teach the text... He said, some Sundays you will sound like a Calvinist, and other Sundays you will sound like an Armenian. I was like, that's actually right. If you faithfully teach the text, you have to acknowledge that there is, there is some tension, that we are, in fact, responsible for what we do with the knowledge and the understanding of God's grace, and that we are held accountable, that he did, in fact, die for the whole world, and that unless the Spirit of God draws the man or a woman, that we cannot come to God. And all of those are true. And where, where the, how we resolve some of the tensions between them is really in God's sovereign will and ability to resolve those tensions. But I, I would be, I, I would be, um, my, my sense is that I would be failing you and my God to rigidly attach to, well, these are the points, and now we'll force the Scripture to match our points. And I don't think that's my job. I mean, my job is to open up the Word and teach it. So here we are, and here's why we're going there. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up in verse 26. We, we finished up with 25 last Sunday. And I want you to think about some of the things I just said the last few moments in regard to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. And I want to make a couple comments, and then we're going to read to the end of the chapter after that. So we'll pick it up in verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if you're paying attention, who's he writing this to? He's writing it to the saints. He's writing it to people who have tasted the grace of God. He is very specific when he talks about um, the one who has trampled underfoot, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, 
by which he was sanctified. So again, if you start from a doctrinal label, then you almost have to do something else with this passage. And so, you know, that had me digging this week. And most of them will say, well, what he's describing is somebody who appeared to be a Christian but was never a Christian in fact. And it wasn't one of the elect. I don't see that in the text. I'm just being honest. I'm not going to make it say something that it doesn't. He simply is talking about this possibility to these Hebrew people that they would know the truth, that they would have experienced grace, and that they would turn away from it and deliberately live their lives as though none of those things had ever happened. And he uses three things that he points out that invite the judgment of God on people who do that. Number one, he talks about how they trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now, these are not people, by the way, who wanted to follow Jesus but found themselves weak at times. This is a conscious thing. It is an intentional rejection of Jesus. And I've had people over the years who have asked if I think they have somehow blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which it talks about, Jesus said would be the one sin that would be unforgivable. And my first response is always, well, does it matter if you did? And if they say yes, then I'm like, well, then you have not. Um, this, is, this is a very egregious, like, conscious rejection of Jesus, trampled underfoot the Son of God. He's very explicit in his language. Um, secondly, he talks about that they have profaned the blood of the covenant. So he's talking about the blood that Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins, and that that is treated as though it didn't matter that a person could have at one time experienced the God, God's grace, the forgiveness that the blood offers, but have gotten to the point of saying, I don't even want the forgiveness because I don't believe in it anymore. It doesn't mean anything to me. And then thirdly, did you know that the Holy Spirit can get angry? He says, here is this sort of hypothetical person who has tasted the grace of God, who has received the knowledge, and at some point, for whatever reason, maybe somebody at their church hurt their feelings. In this context, it was probably people who were turning away from Jesus because of pressure from friends and family who had not yet received Christ. Pressure to return back to their, the religion of their childhood. And that's mostly the context that Hebrews is written in. But he literally uses this term of someone who has understood and has known God's grace, but has chosen instead to follow sin, to reject Jesus, to treat his sacrifice on the cross as, it is, as though it is worthless and common, profane the blood of the covenant is the terminology he's, he's using, but treating the, the sacrifice of Christ as though it has no significance in your life. I don't believe all this Jesus stuff. That whole thing about him dying for our sins, I'm a good person. I don't need to be forgiven if I'm a good person. That's actually true. The problem is you're not, and neither am I. I'm not naturally good, and no one else is either. 
And there's something about that process. He, he uses, that's a strong language, by the way. It says, and outraged the spirit of grace. That's quite a term, isn't it? The idea that we could be so rebellious, so stubborn in our rebellion, that the Spirit of God is angry and is outraged. Now, I don't know what you believe about the Holy Spirit, and I know that Christians have different views about how the Spirit works in other people's li- in our lives and other people's lives. One thing that we can all agree on, we do not want to make him angry. We need the Holy Spirit. We need, Jesus said in John chapter 16, he said, when the Spirit comes, he says he will, he will convict of sin. Well, we need that, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit to bother us when we've done something wrong, when, we, when we've messed up. I, I need the Holy Spirit. It says, John, or uh, Jesus went on to say there in John, he says, he, says he, will convict the, he will convict of sin. He, will sit, he said he will convict of righteousness. So that means that the Holy Spirit also communicates to us that, you know, God loves you. And he communicates the nearness to God. And sometimes when you just, you just know that your sins are forgiven and you feel the peace and the joy and all the things that come from a relationship with God, that's the Holy Spirit at work. Well, we need that, don't we? It says he will convict the world of judgment. And he goes on to describe it, and he's really describing discernment. And that the work of the Holy Spirit would give us the ability to discern what's good and what's evil and to navigate through the days of our lives. I need that, don't you? Like the more I read about the Holy Spirit, the more I want to say, Holy Spirit, control every part of my life. Like take the whole thing. Because he does a lot better job of running it than I do. And the last thing that I would want to do is turn to something else and reject his voice. And there is a warning in these verses because there is also an awareness that we live in the context of lots of voices and lots of pressures and some of them come from unseen forces that the Bible calls demons other times just refers to them as as Satan or Satan working or demons working on the behalf of Satan Um, the Bible refers to our flesh like just our natural appetites and desires that can take us astray, and then it also talks about the world. And those three are the pressures that we live under. The culture around us, sending us messages that are anti-Christ. Messages like, you have the power within you. You're really a good person. Those kinds of messages. Messages that would take us away from a simple dependence on Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. Those messages are everywhere. And sometimes those messages come from people that we don't want to disappoint. And we kind of don't want to think, we don't want them to think that we're a weirdo. And so we sort of fall in, fall in line. These people were under immense pressure to turn away from the simple trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to read this passage and read that it is for those who fall, for Christians who stumble. 
This is for talking about people who openly reject and blaspheme Jesus. We are actually far more secure in our salvation than we have any idea. But I would understand from this text that it is possible to walk away and to reject Jesus. Let's keep going. Verses, verse 32 through 39. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that in your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. I gave you three, three actions that invite the judgment of God according to the verses um, I find in these verses three things that help us preserve our souls. Because that's really the goal of the writer. Is he's saying, I want you guys to stick with it, to stay the course, to end your life having known that you ran well, that you were faithful, and that you stayed with God, that you kept your faith in God. And he says, let me help you with that, the, to preserve your souls. He talks about remembering in verses 32 to 34. He says, remember how you endured. Look backwards and look at how God was faithful in the past. Remember the stories, the times when you didn't know how something was going to work out and you trusted God and he came through. And most of us, if we've walked with God at all, any length of time, we can remember the stories when God was just so helpful, so faithful, and he got us through situations. He talks about how they suffered because of their faith. He says, sometimes you were persecuted. He says, you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. He says, you were put on a, on a pedestal or a spectacle, made a spectacle because of your faith, and you were rejected, and people said mean things about him, none of which is fun at all. And he says, but you received it with joy. He said, you even, you even had compassion on people who were going through the same thing as you. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's so un-American, by the way. Joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. Like, absolutely not. It's my property. You're not touching my property. But here were people that because of their, simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they had lost property that had been taken away from them as a result of their faith. And it says that they did it with joy. And then it even says why they did it with joy. He says, because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. So here's these people where they've trusted Christ and everybody in their town and their neighborhood is against them. And they're like, you're crazy. In fact, they were so offended by their faith in Jesus that they would take them, they would take their houses away from them. They would imprison some of them because they wouldn't pay loyalty to the Roman Caesar. So he's saying, but you guys did it. 
He said, you did it because you kept reminding yourself, boy, this isn't it, is it? I have a better home somewhere else. I got a better position, possession ahead of me. And they were always thinking, well, I'm not going to get too tore up about the stuff here because of what's on the other side. And we, I need that reminder this morning. Can you remember when you first came to Christ and you felt the, the clean heart, the cleansing of his forgiving power? He just cleanses you. You're like, oh, I feel so clean. And then the pressures of life come. And it's possible over the years for that love to begin to wane and get cold. If you went into Revelations, in Revelations chapter 2, there's, there's letters to the churches, letters to the seven churches, and there's one to the church of Ephesus. And remember what he says, what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus? He says, you abandon your first love. Now, for some reason, I, for years I heard people say that they had lost their first love. It doesn't actually say they lost it. It says they left it. They abandoned it. These were people, I mean, go, go read the stories of Paul going to that town of Ephesus in, in the book of Acts. Read First and Second Timothy, who was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. Read the book of Ephesians. I mean, this is actually an important group of people in the New Testament. And here's Jesus saying, you've abandoned your first love. And then his, his call to them is, he says, return to where you were formerly. And then there's actually a warning with that. Revelations opens. I'm not teaching on Revelations this morning, but it's, it's relevant to what I'm saying here about the church of Ephesus. Revelations opens with a lampstand illuminating Christ. And when he talks to the church at Ephesus, he says, if you don't return to your first love, he says, I'll remove your candle. What's he saying? He's saying a church that is not still in love with Jesus will not illuminate Jesus. A church that has grown cold or a Christian that has grown cold in their love doesn't reflect Jesus at all. And if the people around us cannot see Jesus in our lives, it's probably time to be asking ourselves some hard questions. Do I love him like I once did? Have I ever really loved him at all? Can I remember a time when my love for Jesus was so sincere and so passionate that I would have given up all of my possessions for his name's sake. One of the things that I often love to read in the stories of the reformers, and especially that period of time, is people who would gladly give up their lives for the name of Jesus. You know, there has been more of that in church history than there has, been, than there has not been. We live in an anomaly as American Christians that we don't actually suffer for our faith, at least not yet. 
That's actually unusual for the Christian church of the last 2,000 years. That we would live as people with a passion for Christ and that the culture around us would not, would not make us suffer for it. And so, person after person throughout the last 2,000 years has gladly given their life for the cause of the gospel and for Christ. Why? Because that love was still burning bright. Because they could remember because it hadn't been very long ago when they could joyfully accept those things because they knew that they had a better possession ahead. And we're going to see some more of that in the next chapter in the next couple weeks. So first of all, remember, recall the former things. Recall the former days when that love was bright. Secondly, hold on to the promised reward. He says, he says if you're going to endure, he says, hold on. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Like you... you you can argue the doctrinal issues. Is God holding on to me or am I holding on to him? You know what? Let the theologians argue. Look at what he actually says. He just says, he says, hang on. He says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 35. He says, you have need of endurance. The, the confidence of knowing that I, that I am one of God's children, that he loves me, that he cares for me. And we ought to remind ourselves of this all the time. The reason we get insecure is because we forget these truths. That we are held in his loving hands. That we have been forgiven. And that our confidence rests on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Thirdly, he says, move forward in faith. And he's, he says, live by faith. Verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. And he says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no place. So there is some warning here. And again, I'd be remiss if I didn't communicate the tone of the passage because the tone is a tone of warning. The tone is there's an encouragement, there's a teaching, but it's a tone of warning. He says, don't shrink back. Don't pull away and go the other direction. You move forward in faith. He's going to go from here, and we're going to look at this in the next two weeks. He's going to go from here into Hebrews chapter 11, which is one of the best-known chapters in the Bible, certainly in Hebrews, because it's what we call the hall of faith. He's going to recount all of the people of faith and he's going to give some commentary on it, and I'm looking forward to that. And it's like, here he is in verse 36, and he's sort of, sort of starting to build up to this. He's saying, I, this is the plan of God, is that his righteous one would live not by per, the pursuit of wealth, not by the pursuit of power, not by their own righteousness or their own works, but by faith. In fact, if he had not gone to this place, there would be a danger in taking this text and turning it into a very works-based salvation, and I'm aware of that. Because he builds up to this, he also addresses that. 
that our salvation is not contingent on the goodness of our works, that it is contingent on the goodness of his works and our faith in him. And he's like, based on that, hang on to that. Trust that and hold on with everything you have. And my sermon in a sentence. Oh, I wanted to say this. That's why I put those arrows there, was to remind myself. I was reading, actually just this past week, um, an excerpt from Gordon MacDonald's book, Ordering Your Private World. And Gordon MacDonald talks about how we have a public world, you know, the, pe- the part that people see, and we can pretend that we're very healthy to people, but what's going on inside is the private world, and sometimes it's possible to live for a long period of time where the private world is chaotic, and the public one is very orderly. The private one is driven by the self, by self, but the public one is like, oh, no, I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian. And Gordon MacDonald gives three pointers for ordering a healthy private world. He says, have a good understanding of the past and look back and interpret it well and look up all the time. Keep your eyes on God and on who he is, his faithfulness, what he's done for you, and then look forward with hope. And I immediately thought of this passage. It was like the writer of Hebrews beat Gordon MacDonald to the punch. He's stealing from the writer of Hebrews. But there is something to that. Look back, look up, and look forward. That's what the arrows are all about, by the way. You look back in a healthy way of God's faithfulness. You look up often at who he is, and you look forward with anticipation because of what he's promised. Now we're going to go to sermon in a sentence. I couldn't find a better one. I couldn't come up with a better one except for the last verse to wrap all of this up. Because while this passage has a tone of warning, it also has a tone of encouragement. And the writer of Hebrews is looking at the people that he's writing to or he's thinking about them as he's writing. He may have actually preached this because it's written like a sermon. And, and it's like he knows he's just given them a warning. But he also wants to give them some assurance. And he's like, but we're not in that crowd of people. And so he says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. You and I are not the ones to be described in those verses. Sure, there's a warning, but don't shrink back. What are the pressures that you find yourself addressing on a daily basis that want to pull you away from this simple, confident trust in Jesus Christ? You're like, well, I have some, you know, I'm fighting some addictions. Those, yeah, that's, that's real. I fight, you know, I don't like to be seen as weird. I don't want to be unpopular. That's real. I have some friends or family members who just think I'm crazy. 
And they don't, they don't understand it at all. You know what? If you would go back, and I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to um, turn back there, but if you went back to the first part of that section, it talks about how the former days when after you were enlightened. He uses that word enlightened. Like, he, he acknowledges that there was a point in our lives where suddenly we could see things that we had never seen before. That's what it means to be enlightened. You suddenly are able to see things that you had not been able to see before. And some of you might just need to stop and say, Lord, I don't know that I've ever even really been enlightened. I don't see the stuff that other people see. And that's possible to literally, all of us actually, have at some point in our lives been in the context or this, in the scenario of not having yet been enlightened, where the Spirit of God had not yet revealed to us our need for Jesus, his sacrifice for us, and his offering of salvation. And so he says, remember when you were enlightened. And so he's writing to people who had received the light of the gospel, not the light of some teacher. Oh, no, that's, that's not that trivial. Not that they had read some book. Like, oh, my goodness, I've read this book and it changed my life. No. They had seen Jesus. They had been enlightened by the gospel. He says, because of that, he says, we're not going to shrink back. Nowhere else are we going. We're staying with Jesus. Our confidence and our trust is in him, in him alone. In John chapter 6 fascinating story. John chapter 5, he turned, he turned the fish and loaves into enough food for 5,000 people, like just a handful of food. He fed, you know, over 5,000 people with them. John chapter 6, it says the next day people are like, do it again, do it again. We're here for, for more food. And, jo and Jesus begins to tell them, he says, well, you have to eat of me, drink of my blood. And they're very confused by that. It sounds like cannibalism to them. At some point, he's like, no, he's, I'm talking about spiritual realities. He's like, you should be smart enough to know this by now. Um, he's like, I'm talking about spiritual realities, like literally experiencing on a personal level the broken body and blood of Christ. And it says toward the end of John chapter 6, it says that many turned away and no longer walked with Jesus because they were so offended by that. And at some point, Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he says, do you guys want to leave too? He says, do you want to go too? And Peter says, where else are we going to find the words of life? He says, where else can we go to find the words of life? And I think the writer of Hebrews had that kind of a thought in mind. Where else are you going to go to find the words of life? We are not of those who shrink back. Couple ending questions, Amber. If you guys want to go and come up, I want to close. If you're here this morning, again, I want to just give you a little space to respond. Um, I have had a number of moments. If I say a number, I've had a few big moments in my life where I have had to make some some hard choices between what I knew God was leading me to do and the popular opinion of people around me. And I'm not, I don't want to paint 
those pressures as pressures away from Jesus necessarily. But most of us have probably had those times where you knew, you knew what God wanted and you knew the struggle and you knew the battle. And can I just encourage you this morning that if you're even in one of those battles right now, this is not a time to shrink back. This is a time to move forward. You're like, yeah, I don't know how that's all going to turn out, though. Nobody does. But who else has the words of life? Only Jesus. Where else are you going to go? We know for sure what happens when you don't trust him. You get colder and colder. But we know what happens if you do, that he changes from the inside out. I don't know how it all looks. You're like, man, people might think all kinds of things. That's fine. That's not unusual. Is it going to make my life easier? Probably not. It'll always be better. But the, con- the constant struggle is real. The, the, the struggle of the Hebrews is our struggle. We're also living in a world with a lot of pressures. Why don't you stand with me? I'm just going to give you a moment to respond. You can come forward and pray. There'll be a couple of people from the prayer team up here to pray with you if you come. Um, sometimes it's good just to, just to show up and just to pray. You may be here this morning, you're like, you know, I can tell that love has gotten kind of cold. And, um, and I don't want to be like the Ephesus church. I don't want to stop illuminating Jesus. I want the fire to burn bright. You may want to just slip up front and just take care of that, that burden. You might be here this morning and you've, you're like, you know, I've never experienced what you've talked about, what you're talking about, like the forgiveness, that enlightenment. It's none of that's ever happened. Maybe you just need to, just, this is your moment. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I trust you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me from the inside out, and to change my life. That's the simplicity of the prayer. I just invite you to respond wherever you're at. Or if you want to come forward and pray. thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us courage we don't want to be um, we don't want to be apathetic we don't want to be careless God thank you for the faith that you have placed in us God thank you that we can worship together here together as a group of people who are not of those who shrink back God we're not going to shrink back but more of your spirit, more of your love, less of us and more of you. That's what we want, God. So help us to make the applications as only you can. Thank you in Jesus' name. Let's sing.